You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 79 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Bill Mathy. He's got a PhD in journalism and we are going to talk about plant medicine and share our ideas and theories and experiences about them. So uh, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. So tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, I'm, um, I've just finished my PhD in journalism. My sort of particular interest is um, media-facilitated paradigm shifting. Uh, and to do that, I examined um, nationalist parties in Europe. And my other sort of enduring area of interest is a comparative religion. I've uh, sort of been very interested in that since I was a very young boy, ecology, that sort of thing. So there's a bit of a, a hybridization between um, spirituality, ecology and politics, particularly metapolitics or massive cultural shifts um, as they happen in the world, uh, particularly at this point in time when things are getting a little bit critical regarding ecology. And I'm interested in the way, the way that's playing out with uh, plant medicines now too. Uh, writing an article on um, ayahuasca now, and it's sort of uh, the development of the culture that surrounds it, the big transitions that have made, and I'm in preparation to write a book on Iboga and Ibogaine as well. So they're kind of my projects for the year coming. Um, I've had a few health drums that have kind of made me very interested in sort of what happens after life and other sort of realms of reality. So that's probably my big impetus for writing about um, the plant medicines at this particular stage. Do you have any experience with any plant medicine? Well, uh, weirdly enough, I had a bit of a premature initiation when I was four years old. I had a quite strong experience. I was playing in the front of my grandfather's place and I got some belladonna um, lily bulb on my hands and subsequently had like a very strong experience that lasted for about three days. Uh, at, at about five years old, um, which was very, very intense. And I still remember the journey quite vividly. Um, subsequent to that, I have had some um, plant experiences. Uh, uh, very, very strong one with uh, when I was in traveling around Europe, I had uh, the opportunity to try Iboga, which was very potent. You were lucky with the Belladonna then because it can be quite dangerous. Well, it, it nearly killed me. Um, I was five years old and... Uh, they took me up to hospital because I had my pupils had dilated completely and they were just black. Um, and uh, yeah, for three days I kind of hallucinated um, and still remember the visions quite vividly now. And subsequent to that, I woke up um, in a children's children's burns ward, which was quite confronting. And uh, you know, it was certainly a I didn't think of it any much afterwards, but it was certainly a very pardon me, a very strong um, introduction to plant medicine and that, uh, you know, for a five-year-old mind, I think that sort of thing can be um, quite, quite intense, even though I've always sort of been interested in science fiction and futurism and sort of like I've had a, be, always been very curious about almost everything that goes on in the world. It can also be too much because 
I always imagine children at that age, they're already looking at the world from psychedelic eyes. So if they get eat psychedelics, maybe it's like too much of something good. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't recommend it for any five-year-old. I was uh, interviewing someone the other day who works with the uh, Shipibo people, and she was saying they'll often give their children very, very small doses of ayahuasca at sort of ages four or five, maybe at ages sort of like somewhere between nine and 13, if they're actually going to become a curandero, they might start giving them larger doses. But certainly a four-year-old, four or five-year-old is, um, it's extremely dangerous and probably can potentially have a very negative effect on the psyche of a young little kid there. Well, um, you know, uh, belladonna is a bit different than ayahuasca, so it, it might not be as well, I I personally don't think it's dangerous, but I don't think they give them as much to have an effect. It's like microdosing, maybe. I know I know that when they ba- when a baby is born in the Shipibo culture, they give it they they put a drop on their lips. Yeah, because I've also heard pregnant mothers using ayahuasca as well. Obviously, in relatively small, uh, they wouldn't be taking heroic doses by stretch of the imagination but um you know taking significant doses i'm not sure what impact that would have upon the kid but um seems like the babies have been born just fine from what i've heard i don't know whether that's dangerous or not it's a little bit i'm no expert at that so uh, you said also that you did this phd what was the title of the phd the phd is called digital crusades uh it's about the shift of european nationalist parties particularly recently in the past two decades, but more so in the post-World War II era. Uh, so it talks about the transition um, from fascism and Nazism into the current uh, sort of more popular stage where there's a big concern about Islam in Europe uh, in some sectors, uh, which has become even more pronounced since um, Angela Merkel and I believe the Swedes too have been very generous with their refugees policies in comparison to a lot of the rest of Europe. Uh, so this again was sort of like I, I've had a long and enduring interest in um, pre-Christian European history and like the pre-Christian history of pretty much everywhere um, from the Amazon to Australia where I live, uh, Aboriginal culture. Um, and after World War II, there was a uh, intellectual current called the New Right, which is very different from the English World New Right. Um, it was a French-based organisation. They were very into paganism uh, very anti-Christian. They were sort of um, very keen on cultures remaining relatively autonomous and not being overwhelmed by immigrants uh, and you know, anti-communist. So, um, yeah, so they were quite influential on parties like um, Vlaams Belang, the Front National. Uh, the main guy was a guy called Alain de Benoit um, and Guillaume Fay. Uh, and even though I certainly have no interest in, you know, sort of racial nationalism or anything like. Some of their ideas are quite interesting. They've got an idea called archaeofuturism, uh, Guillaume Fay, uh, where he really wants to get the best of ancient European ideas mixed with sort of cutting-edge eco-technology. It's quite bizarre in some ways, really, but um, not that different from what a lot of people uh, from the left and from other sort of visionary perspectives might view where you sort of, you know, uh, integrate ancient traditions which have been lost uh, to capitalism or communism or globalism um, and sort of look to co-join them with really 
you know, cutting edge technologies like solar, uh, solar power, uh, or these sort of things where, you know, even looking at ideas like biomimicry, where you um, imitate natural structures to make them as um, sustainable and as environmentally efficient as possible uh, as we're sort of heading towards this very significant and, you know, for many quite frightening ecological change. But it's been the hottest summer in Australia that I can remember. It's usually, we're usually getting into the cool weather now and I've feel like I'm in the tropics. I'm just wandering around in a pair of shorts where normally it'd be a little little more chilly than that. When I was a child, there used to be, uh, I used to have, uh, where I live, proper winters, but uh, the winters have become much milder, I think. Um, so it you can do see some change. I don't know if it's possible uh, to see it. Uh, I mean, the time scale is quite small. It's, we're talking 15 years, but I don't know if it's visible in such a quick time span but i think i can see a difference yeah i'm not sure it's it's just certainly noticeable here that summers are becoming longer and hotter the winters are becoming briefer um and which is sort of one of the other things i'm interested in i've had a long term long and very enduring curiosity is if there is any other sort of parallel uh, realities or if life after death does exist um and if so what is the gateways or possible communications between these other possible realms and the one that we live in. So that was one of my major interests for, for in plant medicines or um, visionary plant medicines, aside from the medicinal and therapeutic aspects, uh, the psycho-spiritual aspects were the most interesting and the ones I'm hoping to investigate fully as I write this book in Iboga and um, sort of engage further with the articles on ayahuasca that, I'm, that I've been working away on now. But, um, yeah, it seems like... For many people I've spoken to, they're under the impression that um, when they do when they do uh, take ayahuasca in particular, um, and again to a lesser extent, they believe that it's actually the sort of Gaia spirit or the world spirit communicating with them, uh, and sort of often warning them that things are getting really really dangerous. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's something in our minds or if it's external to us. Um, I don't know. Have you had? experiences with plant medicine that you've that you're convinced was an external intelligence or a spirit of the plant or do you believe it's an internal thing to your own mind well uh, i have had that message as well uh, about uh, saving the rainforest uh, it told me but i don't know if that was myself telling me because i believed that before but uh, i was told in a different stronger way so i it's hard for me to separate, but I, I I think like this that it doesn't matter if it's in your mind or if you are talking with some sort of god or whatever, because if um, uh, if uh, if it gives you guidance that uh, improves your life, if it comes from God or if it comes from yourself, the effect is the same. So it doesn't really matter. And uh, also, if you take ayahuasca and you start believing in some sort of God force, I say God, but I don't know what it's called, but some sort of force, uh, and you live your life believing in this after the experience, and you die and you find out it just goes black, you won't even have time to understand that you're wrong. Because if, if you're wrong, it just goes black, so it doesn't matter. 
But if it doesn't go black and there is an afterlife, then uh, you, I think you do have an advantage because you lived your life preparing for such a, a moment. Whereas somebody who is a hardcore atheist, when they die, I had a friend, we discussed this, he said, well, they're going to have a big shock. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that was kind of my main interest. There's a few aspects that a number of years ago I used to work uh, before I went back to do my PhD, I was working with um, a drug-using population in Brisbane, which is a city in Australia, and um, they were just so many lost souls and so damaged and so traumatised in most cases. And I've been following MAPS quite closely, and a lot of the um, research coming out of MAPS is suggesting that um, entheogens are doing wonderful things for PTSD and trauma and often people with drug and alcohol problems. Um, it's simply a matter of them being so deeply traumatized and, um, you know, it's almost like the world is so damaged in so many ways. And, uh, there seems like a lot of possibilities that these, these visionary plant medicines can really assist humans at this point in time. Uh, and this renaissance in, Entheogenic culture um, and the sort of shamanic renaissance might might be a, certainly a human response to the sort of the plight the world finds itself in, um, but also you know many people believe it's actually the world talking through the plants as if they're the gateway to speaking to Gaia or as if they're the gateway into other realms of reality, um, which is, of course is always fascinating. And again, I'm un, I'm uncertain whether it's something real or a human created thing it doesn't as you say it doesn't really matter at this stage of the game though over time it seems a lot of people tend to think it's actually uh, an external intelligence yeah i i believe it's an external intelligence but I, I you know also the ayahuasca has told me or shown to me that uh, you you can never know anything unless you have a direct experience so i can only say from my experience but i i, I couldn't say it's the hundred percent truth because I, I i don't know i haven't died yet so <laughs> i don't know but but um that's uh, they i mean uh, before i did any of these plant medicines i was a hardcore atheist so it only took uh, one ceremony for me to completely change my opinion because before that I kind of thought uh, everything I mean I, I viewed life on earth as mold just like the our planet was a bit moist and it just got moldy and the, 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 it's not nothing more than that <laughs> and how do you view it now well, now I think I see it bigger than just that uh, you mentioned that the, the the planet is talking to us. I think it's actually the whole universe or all of the universes. So it's... Uh, uh, our planet is just like a, a small part of a bigger thing. So I kind of see the whole universe and everything in it as a big virtual rea reality. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, again, the experience, of course, is beyond description, but there is certainly radical shifts in consciousness going on. Did you went to Peru or you went elsewhere? No, I, I always like to go to the source. So I, I've done Iboga and Ayahuasca in, in Gabon and in Latin America, in Peru. So I like to, I'd like to experience it with the indigenous. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so that was one of the other things that I'm writing about is... Um, one of my 
things I've kind of come to realize over time is that uh, men, European, developing worlds, um, I have a deep, deep sense of alienation, um, and I believe the sense of being uninitiated. I know there's a few other people that come up with this idea, but I find a lot of men um, and a lot of people in totality actually in consumer societies are perennial teenagers in the sense that they never really transition from um, children to men in a prompt way and remain teenagers for decades and still need to buy a lot of stuff and engage in relentless conspicuous consumption. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the West, for all its genius in the technological sense, is a very immature society in some ways. And for all the things we've gained, we've certainly lost um, lost a lot as well. It's become a very atomized culture. Um, you know, it's become a, a very material, purely materialistic culture with um, economy being seeming to be the most defining factor with, you know, in historically there was communism and capitalism, which um, both were once, you know, this, the both two sides of the same coin. So I guess in that sense, I've been interested in ancient cultures forever. Uh, and that goes for Europe as well as the Amazon and Australia and everywhere else. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned about where we're headed in the world. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that these plant medicines and uh, can assist people in navigating the future in as healthy way as possible. Um, and that it's a, and it becomes a lot more than simply a fad in adventure travel. It seems like a lot of people find their lives radically changed by ayahuasca in particular. Uh, and, you know, a boga is, you probably experience as a, as a for, for a lot of people, it's a much heavier experience. It's much stronger. The physical response can be a lot stronger. Did, did you find the two to be substantially different or not? Uh, well, I've done... I think I've done around 20 ayahuasca ceremonies, but I've only done one iboga ceremony. So, so yeah, it's much stronger. It is much stronger, hey? And um, when I've been, my sort of thinking is, you know, I was, uh, interviewing Peter Gorman, who's one of the uh, sort of Western pioneers of ayahuasca, who sort of was down there back in the 80s, um, and he was saying that you get tens of thousands of people going to Akitos. I've never been there myself. One of my um, friends has spent a long time in the Sacred Valley taking plant medicine. Um, and there's literally tens of thousands of people going down there. So there's obviously uh, people with mental health issues, adventurers, seekers, explorers. And hopefully for a good portion of those people will have a significant impact upon their psyche about the way they view existence um, and it'll clean up a lot of their neurosis and mess, which, you know, is one of the reasons why humans can be so outrageously destructive is because we just don't know what we're doing a lot of the time or, you know, people are more interested in how big Kim Kardashian's bottom is as opposed to uh, sort of like impending impending ecological disasters or, you know, the, the disappearance of nations that have been around for millennia. So that's kind of my... And Iboga is, again, I believe... After the ayahuasca, um, sort of the huge interest in ayahuasca, ayahuasca, some people will be taken further into plant medicine. At that stage, they might try um, iboga, which is the reason I'm writing the book, because it it does have a reputation of being a, a much heavier and a much harder sub, a much heavier medicine, and also there is some association with um, 
heroin users because it's such a such an effective counter to opium addiction. Um, but you know, people that look hard enough, they'll find that that may be the next uh, the next sort of entheogen that people take seriously um, and may, may increase in popularity. So my intention is to write a guide that covers the history, um, both the psychospiritual use, the medicinal use, the therapeutic use, um, the Gabonese experience, the French experience, and of course the Western experience from Howard Lotsoff, which seems a good portion of the stuff written these days is written about his um, his involvement and the involvement of sort of heroin users uh, and also uh, Dana Beale and other sort of yippies and radical Americans uh, that were very keen to use it as a as an interrupter in um, for heroin addicts. You know, you didn't want them dropping like flies. What was your experience of Iboga like? Oh, it was uh, very intense. I, I mainly did it because of uh, anthropological interest. Um, and I would say that if a person wants to go on a spiritual journey and uh, get to know themselves and advance mentally or something, then they should stick to ayahuasca. Iboga is, I think, it's so powerful, especially f- for a white man who's not been grown up in that iboga culture, that iboga is most suited for people who really need serious help, like addiction or something. But if you just want to like grow spiritually, I would suggest ayahuasca because iboga is almost too much. But um, I still got, I mean, I still got a lot from it. But, um, you know, um, ayahuasca is more... Uh, guiding you and helping you along, holding your hand. It's also very powerful and you can have horrible experiences, but it's still, compared to Iboga, it's more like getting a beating. It is. It's, it is more like getting a beating. It almost is like uh, my experience. It felt like I was being punished for the bad things I'd done in previous parts of my life. Um, and it was a very, very hard, uh, very strong lesson. But I'm you know glad to have done it. But um, it seems that that's often the case. When I've interviewed other people about their iboga experiences, people have gone through, you know, all their ancestral trauma, mass rapes, you know, warfare, death, bleakness, traveling to hell, which, of course, uh, I I know all this sort of horrific stuff can happen on um, ayahuasca as well and um, other, other visionary substances. But it seems like iboga is the one that gives you the hardest uh, kicking or beating, as you say, if um, if your previous life hasn't been so pure. And I imagine a lot of the users being uh, heroin users have had pretty rough times and probably done some things they regret profoundly, uh, just, you know, maybe to make money so they can keep their habit going. And um, when they confront themselves at such a powerful and brutal level, it's uh, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real crack across the head, you know. I think it was Graham Hancock who said that he thinks all presidents should do ayahuasca, but I think they should all do iboga. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you'll stop lying and you'll stop being a, um, a dickhead quite quickly after iboga. It certainly changed the way I view existence in a fairly significant fashion. It made me realize some of the things I've done in the past, how um, erroneous they were. When you did it, did you do it in a buddhi ceremony or did you do it elsewhere? 
No, I, yeah, I did it in a traditional bewitches ceremony, and that's also why it's so much harder because when you in a, in a traditional ayahuasca ceremony, you know, they they sing to you, and it's quite melancholic or beautiful songs. But when you do it in a bewitchy, you know, there's like twenty people there. They're dancing. They they have torches with fire. They're spinning around. They have drums. They have. I mean, it's like a like a drum and bass party or something. So, uh, and because sound is so becomes so strong in any psychedelic, you know, that's why people. That's why the the electronic, you know, psychedelic music has become so big. Is because people take LSD and they like to dance and listen to it. So music becomes very powerful when you when you take a plant like this, and. Uh, and and with the iboga they you know be, you know because they're using drums and they like singing loudly and running around that also makes it stronger than just some single shaman sitting singing quietly to you you know yeah it's uh, so you had the thing where they um paint your body white to make it look like you you've died and be reborn did you go through that whole process yeah they uh, first they uh, take you to the forest to present you to the forest and you're dressed in black and then they baptize you or in the water and and then you you they put white on you and then you have to wear white for a few days and every day you do different things like you have to eat eat things to uh, make your body receive it better they put things in your eyes to make your eyes clearer there's one day they you know they put you in a uh, they smoke you to purify you and you even have to practice vomiting. You have to drink this nasty thing just to practice your vomit muscles. So there's many like rituals before actually you eat the iboga. And then ve- eventually on the day when you're supposed to eat the iboga, they dress you in red. So you, you go from black to white to red, which is also the you know colors of alchemy. When people who are into spiritual alchemy, they... Uh, represent the transformation steps or the colors as black, white and red. Red is the final stage. So red is like uh what does what does red signify? Uh oh it's it's the the rebirth or the you know the the highest level. And then when you when you are white in the white stage which is the when you're in white the is um nobody is allowed to touch you. You're like you, you. You're untouchable. Nobody can touch you, according to the tradition. You are like, uh, uh, you know, like, like a leper almost. <laughs> Absolutely. So was that with the root bark that you had that or not? Yeah, it was root bark. So uh, I never tried ibogaine, and from my understanding, it's not as strong as the root bark. The root because there's one. This is also something people misunderstand i know some people make like ayahuasca even though they don't have real ayahuasca they just take dmt and then they take an maoi inhibitor and put it together and you kind of get the ayahuasca effect but what most people seem to not realize is that the actual iboga root it's not only the actual psychedelic thing in it that's the medicine. It's actually the root itself, as well as with the ayahuasca. It's, it's the actual plant because you can feel it in your body. I mean, it's 
even if you take a small dose that's not has any effect it still is a, a medicine but if you just extract it all this stuff in a lab and put it together you will get the same effects like the DMT visions but you lacking the actual medicine i think when you were down in um peru did you one of the other things i'm writing about in this article is brujeria because one of my sort of main themes is a lot of uh influence from the West, from ideas like yoga, tantra, uh, meditation, enlightenment, um, karma and all that stuff, which isn't necessarily a traditional part of um, Amazonian, the Amazonian cosmovision, even though in some cases it may be, I hear some groups believe in reincarnation. Uh, I'm very interested in this sort of, the, the, the traditions that are hidden because it doesn't look so good for marketing and Brujeria is a very large part of it um, and, you know, attack sorcery. Because you've got to consider these people were tribal people only two or three generations ago, uh, engaged in warfare and, um, you know, they were engaged in hunting and they, ayahuasca would have a, was a practical spiritual technology. Um, notions of enlightenment and that sort of thing um, from what I can understand from interviews I've done and from what I've read, weren't really a, of huge import, but there's something that, um, you know, European seekers or people from a Western background have usually sort of gone of route, something like, you know, um, yoga, meditation, and then after that, they will have come across um, entheogens and they will bring those ideas into sort of the entheogenic culture uh, and you've got sort of psych psychotherapy, psychology, um, ideas of Reiki and energy, uh, so there's just so many different perspectives that Westerners bring into plant medicine. I'm sure a lot of them are valid, but uh, I guess sort of my interest is to maintain a degree of tradition um, as 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 the culture surrounding it evolves, because there's a lot of really wonderful insights at the core of um, the cosmovisions of native people. Um, you know, including our own ancestors, I guess you'd probably have Viking ancestors. And the story goes that uh, berserkers would use magic mushrooms to get in a battle frenzy. I don't know if that's true or not. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and we, Europeans would have had, uh, you know, a lot, particularly around mushrooms, had substantial ethogenic use as well. So I guess it's... Um, the idea is to maintain a core of tradition or at least make sure tradition is well considered as these other ideas uh, these other ideas influence in, in more profound ways and it spreads across the world, which it will in due course. Um, and, yeah, so the other thing was ayahuasca healings uh, was a sort of the thing that inspired me to start writing this article. I've been following it for probably about... When I was younger, I used to be... Um, into techno and drum and bass. When I went back to uni about 15 years ago, I used to work in um, nightclubs to put myself through university again. And I was quite familiar with the, you know, rave culture and um, people taking, uh, you know, not just party drugs, but taking drugs for spiritual development in that milieu again. And that's kind of, I've seen that, left that scene. Um, and I've seen the transition again now that ethnogens is sort of, become one of the uh, most important ways of spiritual development, um, whether it's a bit of a fad, some people might suggest, I don't know. Yeah, so the idea is to keep it the tradition uh, there while these other influences 
merge with it um, and hopefully, you know, people with visionary capacity and an interest in improving the world in a more sort of sustainable fashion can um, use these technologies as a way to to move forward in that direction. And, you know, the strategy is because it makes most sense in um, in a Western scientific context, context is to, you know, these drugs are really wonderful for assisting soldiers with PTSD in a lot of cases, uh, MDMA for assisting people with PTSD as well. Ayahuasca seems to have assisted a lot of people with depression and anxiety. It's a, an excellent method to try and, you know, make the war on, dissolve the war on, make the approach to um, to using entheogens and even, you know, recreational drugs a bit more sane, certainly decriminalise it at, at very least. When I, uh, I was on a, like I, I mentioned earlier, I was an atheist, but I was still uh, on a spiritual journey seeking something, even though I, I was an atheist. And I always had an anthropological interest, or I always been interested in indigenous culture. So really, the, my only reason for doing ayahuasca, which was my first uh, plant medicine experience, was of some sort of hobby anthropology reason. I never expected it to to start healing me. That was completely i was not uh, expecting that I, I i was more like trying to investigate what are these visions and how does it work and in what way does it happen but this healing part just came out of left field it, it was not uh, my intention from the beginning so it, it kind of caught me by surprise and that's also why i think it's quite amazing oh uh, yeah when i was young that sort of I grew up in like the sort of suburban fringe on just near a mountain and I was always spending a lot of time on my own wandering around in the hills on a few occasions I had, um, you know, some sort of moments where my ego dissolved and I was very close to nature and I was kind of in wonder of it and it was, I guess, that's one of the wonderful things about being a child. The world literally is a magical place and, um, you know, with a good imagination, these spirits and energies and you can make up wonderful stories and that all sort of, you know, most people lose that at some stage. And, um, you know, sort of these visionary plant medicines can reawaken that and um, show you actually in a lot of ways, particularly how profoundly unhealthy cities are um, and these ideas of what actually the, the true nature of reality is. Um, and I'd sort of re-inspired my interest in is there life after death? Are there uh, non-human beings involved in reality and existence? Um, and those questions are still ones that I think about constantly. And, you know, I'm writing about at this point in history, is there life after death? Is reincarnation valid? Uh, you know, when you get these sort of feelings, um, is that actually sensing something supernatural for want of a better term? Um, you know, and I, it's it's a question that's sort of been pervasive since I was a little kid and I'll probably still be for the rest of my life, I'd say. And it seems like, again, it's a bit like yoga or it's a bit like med meditation or Zen Buddhism. It's about an experiential understanding of spirituality because people are really bored with being told how things are, I think, and they want to find out for themselves. Well, a good portion do anyway. You mentioned earlier uh, about uh, maybe not, the indigenous were using it for becoming enlightened or things like that. And I actually, uh, from my understanding, 
the the tradition, especially with ayahuasca, was that it was only the shaman who drank the ayahuasca. I mean, in the old days, the the thing that we are drinking it now is more uh, is a different uh, way to do it. So, I, I from my understanding is that uh, five hundred years ago they were the only ones who were drinking it, and nobody else. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Um, at, at least amongst the Shipibo, anyway, which seemed to be the the main sort of uh, ethnic group that most people go over and train with. And uh, and and they were also, I mean, many people. I mean, it's, I did that mistake as well. I started viewing these shamans as like uh, enlightened teachers. But then, after um, having more experiences and talking to people, I realized that. The actual shamans, they're just like dentists. They're not, they just have the same, they're just like normal people. The, the teacher and the enlightened person, that's, it's the plant. They're just like uh, a facilitator, you know. Absolutely. They're like sort of channels and, which is one of the other interesting things as it's become more and more popular over time. Um, and Ayahuasca Healings is set up. It's, you're familiar with them? Yeah. Yeah, they've set up their place, and I think they actually just shut themselves down recently or at least put their um, ceremonies on hold. It brings into, again, another, which is the conclusive part of this article I'm writing, the legal aspects of it, considering, you know, as you know, DMT is illegal in the States. Um, the Native American church over there has an exemption for uh, peyote, and that's just a certain number of tribal groups that would have used that traditionally. Um, to my understanding, in certain places south in the southwest, um, whereas uh, ayahuasca has no historical use in North America, but they sort of tried to set themselves up under the uh, under the under the protection of uh, an American Native American church. That's a little bit controversial. Um, I believe one of the they some guy in Hawaii had. Uh, grown a whole bunch of marijuana, um, and he said it was being used as a sacrament, and I don't think the police uh, really were in agreement with that, and I think he's facing quite a substantial jail term. But these guys, uh, Mark Jackman and Trinity de Guzman, were trying to do the same thing with ayahuasca in Washington State, uh, which was, you know, I guess I've, I'm, I'm a trained copywriter as well, or I'd, I've done a bit of that stuff to help me through uni, uh, and when I was very ill, I was doing that because I could do it from home. And it was um, the marketing techniques used by them were quite unusual and the amount of money they were asking was very substantial. And I guess the other thing we're talking about too is, uh, as, as, you, as you'd know yourself, um, the curanderos you find in the Amazon have been usually at it for the, the really good ones for 20 or 30 years, some of them, you know, because they start when they're really young kids and... Um, if they've got a calling or if they're a little bit special or if they've got an affinity with the plant medicines and they've got that experience um, that, you know, for decades because some Western minds are pretty fractured. As you know, there's been a murder down there um, by someone that went psychotic on the, on the medicine. There's oh, been... Actually, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I've, I've talked to some people and he actually wasn't on the medicine, the guy who murdered somebody. He, 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 the one he murdered was on the medicine, but the guy who was murdering, he, he was sober. 
the guy that murdered the other guy was defending himself though is that the case or not yeah he he some guy who was on ayahuasca started like scared him somehow and he killed him so yeah and his sexual assaults and there's been a few other people that have died in ceremony i think there was one in ecuador recently and there was one in peru a little while back so um obviously the medicine's a very powerful thing um and when I was speaking to a number of people, they were really concerned that someone that, you know, as you know, it can sort of reveal deep memories. Um, if someone remembers their father has raped them or uh, some other horrific memory resurfaces and they have a psychotic episode, or uh, you have to be really, really attentive and careful. You know, the, the curanderos are capable of calming down the situation and making sure those people can integrate that, which is a bit of a worry with the ayahuasca healings, I think. I I never. I mean, if if a white if a white Western man or woman say they are a shaman, uh, they're not. I uh, <laughs> they can't be because uh, I, I get a bit annoyed about this. They go down there, have a few ceremonies, and then they take a course, and then they're suddenly a shaman, and they're not really. Uh, they they can be at best. I mean, they can be a facilitator, but uh, I think it's dangerous to to think of them as sh- shamans because they have no experience and they don't have any culture. I mean, their parents weren't shamans or their family weren't shamans, and it it takes uh, many generations to to have that kind of uh, knowledge. Oh, absolutely. You know, so yeah, you'd probably I don't know. I I'd probably feel you know, comfortable with someone that's been seriously involved in it in maybe for for a decade or something like that, you know, for 10 years that they'd been involved in it in a fairly serious way. I do understand why these gringos go take ayahuasca and then come home and, and want to be shamans and want to, to heal people because uh, I did have, I did suffer through that after my first experiences as well because you kind of get a messiah complex because the experience if you never had one before is so powerful that when you come out of it it's like having an encounter direct encounter with god so it you that's it is a natural first reaction and you're trying to tell everybody and you you want to call the new, new the cnn and inform them on what's happened and uh, but then you know if you keep working with the plant it kind of like puts you down put your feet back on the ground and you like so that's like a natural first reaction you have you know it's it's the same reaction is as if a real ufo would land on your your outside your house and aliens would come out you would have the same reaction you would you know go crazy but then after a while you realize that no it's um there's no point in preaching to others or trying to like do this or that because it's a personal journey I think there has been, and I think it's too many actually, but if you even would say it's 10 incidences of somebody getting dying from ayahuasca, it's still uh, a joke compared to the pharmaceutical industry where like hundreds of thousands of people die. So I still, even though it's some say it's dangerous and you have to be careful, it's still very safe compared to what's legal and out there oh it is it's still hugely safe uh compared to that but i suppose the issue is um you know again the pharmaceutical industry 
for mental health issues a lot of those the connection is getting worse so maybe maybe we should close this talk uh, because uh, but we we talked an hour anyway so it's uh, we have some good information so, yeah thank you for talking to me okay so, thanks mate thank you this talk stopped a bit abruptly, but that was because the connection became so bad and it was impossible to continue, so I edited a chunk out from the ending. But I still hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. At one point in this talk I say that ayahuasca is better for spiritual development than iboga, and that iboga is better reserved for people with serious addiction. Now, I forgot to mention that this is only my personal preference. Although I loved my iboga experience, ayahuasca is the teacher plant for me, and I just personally prefer it over iboga. And I wanted to point this out because I don't want anyone out there that use iboga for spiritual growth to think I'm dismissing it. I am just talking from my own personal experience and preference, and this perspective is the one I always and can only have. To close this episode, we are going to listen to Psychedelic Sun's track Psychedelic Sun from the album Outer Arm. If you like this track, go to psychedelicsons.bandcamp.com to check out more. You will also find all the links in the program notes on nationalbornalchemist.com. And if you have the time, like the National Born Alchemist Facebook page as well as follow the Twitter account, which is called Born Alchemist. Stay healthy and stay safe. Freedom is in the mind. Mm -hmm.